Joseph Principe, prisoner number 25171-112, was a guy who had two employers at the administrative maximum prison located at Florence, Colorado. Like spies and other traitors, Joe had to keep his second employer secret, a very hard thing to do when dealing with criminals. There's a reason for the saying, no honor among thieves. Like Joe, I was also a correctional officer in Union Stewart. We both worked around the worst of the worst at the prison called the end of the line. USP Marion, where I worked, had just had a change of mission. We sent our worst of the worst prisoners to the new ADX in Florence, Colorado, where Joe worked. Theoretically, the new ADX was supposed to be an improvement in inmate and staff safety. The new university-trained staff was in stark contrast to the older, mostly high school graduates at Marion. The Bureau had come up with a new idea specifically tailored to the younger, more educated employees. It was called deganging. The new program would require a much closer relationship between the new staff and the inmates who were in leadership positions of the major, major prison gangs. At Marion, the guards had an unwritten policy of space between us and them. We felt that the prisoners would attempt to compromise and manipulate anybody they could. But at the new prison, the staff was encouraged to talk to guys with names like the Baron, the Hulk, and Lucifer. Leaders of the most disruptive groups in the federal prison system. In my opinion, this is what started the sad story I'm about to tell you. There are no winners in this tale just losers to a more or less degree. Joe will tell you that he was set up. I agree, but not in the way Joe might tell you. It was the new system. The disregard of who the inmates are and who the new generation of guards are. A little history of both groups of uh, people will enlighten you as to how this tragedy was set in motion by the grand new ideas with a disregard of what had come before. Joe was born and raised in the Bronx, New York City. I was raised in a small town in the, near the woods in the Pacific Northwest. Straight out of high school, Joe and I joined the Army. I was in the military police, and Joe was an airborne ranger who loved to jump out of perfectly good airplanes. After the Army, Joe had a string of jobs. He was even a private investigator for a while. I was a guard in a nuclear plant and a small-town police officer. Joe and I both noticed that the Bureau was hiring, had good pay and benefits. I started in 1989 at USP Marion in Illinois, and Joe started two years later at USP Lewisburg in Pennsylvania. Joe and I both went to college by then, you know, partly paid for by the Army. I was a history major, and Joe took philosophy. Both areas of studies, I may add, uh, do nothing to make a prison guard any better at their job. My attitude toward the prisoners was that they get what they got coming and uh, not a thing more. I had little flexibility for the most part but tempered this personal policy with common sense. To me, the rules were the rules. To Joe, he was a lot more flexible. 
His policy of go along to get along will work in just about any other situation than a supermax prison. The inmates are looking for any chink in your armor and will exploit anybody they perceive to be weak. People who do not enforce the rules are not thought of as nice, but weak. My job was to collect intelligence on the prisoners. I was supposed to be all up in their business. The job of a guard can be long and boring or full of inquisitiveness. At other prisons, like Joe worked, he was used to just doing his shift, and if everybody went home safe, that was a good day. If Joe bent the rules now and then, you know, nobody cared if nobody got hurt. I was trained to keep my eyes and ears open. My supervisors constantly asked me what I had seen and heard and suggested ways to improve my observation skills. Joe thinks that if, uh, you know, it makes it an easy on the prisoners, then, you know, they'll make life easy on him. This attitude was common in the administration at USP Marion, with few exceptions. The wardens would give more and more to the inmates till it became a problem, and about once a year, they'd have some campaign that they usually called Take Back Marion that they would not support, and uh, they'd give back everything we took almost as soon as we took it. I had a friend who suggested that they make Take Back Marion uh, a video and they show it every year at annual training. That's who Joe was and who I was. Now let's talk about the opposition team, the Aryan Brotherhood. I have other videos on them and their leadership if you're interested. Please watch them. They were called the Brand after their symbol, the Shamrock, they tattoo all over themselves, or the ABs as I call them. The group started in the 1960s in California prisons. Later, they spread out to the federal and Texas systems for the most part, but there are members in everybody's prison system. The gang is widespread, but very small. They account for less than one-tenth of one percent of prisoners in the federal system, but kill about a quarter of all inmates who die by violence. The group is, quote, most vicious gang in federal prisons, unquote. That was by Michael Carr, assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Illinois, and he said that in federal court in 2008. The gang is affiliated with the Mexican Mafia. During a race war in the federal system during the 90s that I remember all too well, the ABs and their affiliates assassinated over a dozen leaders of the D.C. Blacks. They have killed suspected informants. The gang was responsible for the murder of two officers at Marion in a single day. Members who are even suspected of being a snitch are murdered in horrific ways. Stabbed 50 or more times, had their head cut off, strangled with a wire, and other horrible inhumane ways. Men have been killed for being gay even while members pimp out other male prisoners or engage in homosexual acts themselves. By the time Joe and I came along, the ABs were a force to be reckoned with. A report by the FBI in the mid-1980s said the ABs had a stranglehold on some of the top leaders of La Cosa Nostra that were in prison. The Mafia, in part, was now funding the ABs. 
The most celebrated incidents of this activity was when the dapper Don, John Gotti, was allowed to be beaten up by a black inmate at Marion. I have a video on this, too, if you'd like to watch it. I was there that day. It seems that the FBI had given up on ever being able to get a really good case on the ABs, since all their informants ended up as dead bodies dragged up and down the range of some cell house. They stuck to, in it, to uh, investigating, you know, the obvious crimes like murder. But the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the BATF, picked up the gauntlet. They spent a decade or more trying to get an inside man to tell them about the activities of the ABs. They really hit it big in 1998 when Kevin Roach flipped for him and started debriefing. The guy was a phenomenal source. He was on the Council of the Aryan Brotherhood and was only outranked by the three-member commission. He was involved in, or knew of, almost all the murders and big money schemes the brand was doing. I can tell you, he's one guy I knew before he entered the witness protection program. Today, Kevin Roach is an official non-person. Training videos he made about a variety of subjects were shown to us, the rank-and-file guards. About this time, the ABs decided that if they had informants in their mists, they wouldn't like to have some of their own. They needed some of us to provide them with information and a few favors. Danny Weeks was an AB member who played the game of double agent. He was given access to sensitive information on DEA operations, which he had sent out of the prison to a legal team on the outside. By trusting the ABs, who had supposedly become snitches, they gave up highly classified information that was passed on to the AB leadership. Weeks went public with what he had done and the entire snitch program by contacting the press and telling them what he did and gave them proof. He claimed in a newspaper article that Kevin Roach and other AB named uh, Eugene Bentley had made up most of the stuff they told the BATF and the BOP. Joke was on the government. Another informant confirmed what Weeks claimed and further claimed that the warden, by the name of Pugh out there at the ADX, showed Snitch's guards personnel files that included names, photos, addresses, and telephone numbers. This might explain the reason the ABs ended up with a list of that type of information from some of my co-workers and me. At Marion, we were told it was some sort of computer security issue that released our personal information to the dangerous criminal organization. Roach claimed that he had the ADX intelligence officer's balls if he wanted them. Principe was perceived by the ABs as weak and a pain in the ass to be around. Warden Pugh was showing photos of his staff to the ABs and asking the on-again, off-again snitches who was dirty. They decided to finger Principe. He was put on home duty status on the 16th of August, 1999. Now, I've known several people assigned to home duty status for a variety of reasons. Most have been cleared of the charges against them and returned to duty. One guy told me it is worse than punishment. 
You must stay home and answer the phone if called. You feel isolated and alone. A union calls, and so do your pals from time to time, but after several months the calls stop or slow way down. I can tell you it's like that when you retire. You hear from your pals a lot at first, but after a couple of years, nada. So much for we're all one big family. Now, idle hands are the devil's workshop, it's true. Sitting at home alone, wife and kids are gone in a, you know, in an ongoing divorce proceeding. Bitter custody battle, father recently died. Uh, Joe, he always carried a gun and acted pretty strange anyway. Then he made the big mistake of loaning his car and some cash to an acquaintance. The guy kept his car for almost a week, but rather than call the cops, Joe decided to handle it himself. When he finally caught up with the guy, he claims to have just slapped him around a little bit and told him to get the money pronto. The other guy called the cops and told a whole different story. His story was being handcuffed and beaten, having his ponytail cut off and threatened. When the story broke of the arrest, a former girlfriend showed up at the police station to make a complaint of stalking, rape, and threats of death, you know, and kidnapping. One of his co-workers testified at trial that he bragged about doing all the stuff the girl's story said he did. Joe decided to plead guilty to the lesser charges, and uh, he only got eight years instead of the 32 that he was originally looking at. A year later, while serving time in state prison, Joe had a visit. It was the ATF and the BOP investigators. They showed him the indictment that would be the largest in RICO case history up until that day. In it, Joe was accused of faking incident reports to protect uh, A.B. Commissioner Bingham when he got into a fight with a black inmate by the name of Leroy Elmore. Moving in rates around that, uh, you know, Bingham, Mills, and Roach could communicate and plan A.B. activities. He was supposed to have been you know, on the half-million-dollar contract to kill Walter Johnson. You know, the black guy who beat up the Mafia Don John Gotti. This made Joe a part of the RICO crime and could subject him to life in prison. The plot to kill a bank robber, Walter Johnson, by the ABs for the Italian Mafia Don John Gotti made the news in New York City. This is where I heard of the thing. Joe spent the next two years in the hole at Federal Prison in Terminal Island, California. This is a very long time. A prisoner may only get about six months in the hole for a murder. Two years, that's almost unheard of. To keep from losing his mind, he started a, you know, a routine of exercise in a cell, studying classic literature and learning how to improve his writing skills. A year into this, his mind seems to have started to slip. He became one of those guys we guards hate, needing to be extracted from his cell by force throwing things, yelling and screaming all the time. Yeah, he was a mess, and, uh, and he won't talk about it. The BOP ain't talking either, so I can only imagine how bad his behavior became. The end of the two years came when he pled guilty to one RICO charge and was given 15 months to be served at the same time as his eight-year prison sentence. In other words, it didn't add one minute to the time he spent locked up. 
Now that should have been the end of it, but you might suspect that since this is not the end of the video, it's really not the end. Now I have some relatives who live in the Bronx, New York City. Not all that far from Joe, or at least Joe's parents. In the city, they have these community newspapers. The place is so big that people want a little paper about what goes on around them and not 10 miles away, which, you know, they consider another planet or something. In the Bronx community paper, it was reported that on the 18th of November, 2008, around noon, the cops were called to Joe's parents' house. Uh, it was in the November 28th issue of the paper, if you want to see it. It's a... Uh, well-kept, all-brick, two-story house that was crammed New York City-style onto a way too small a lot. The attic had one of those round windows in it. There's this uh, wellness center across the street and a Rite Aid within rock-throwing distance, and the house next door is so close that if you open a window, you could spit on it from Joe's house. Like most of the Bronx, parking is tight on the street, that was the house. Joe took all of his clothes off and stood in the window and yelled all kinds of crazy stuff at the police for 23 hours. It all started with a visit from his parole officer and Joe saying he wanted to hurt himself. Then the cops got involved. Then Joe took off all of his clothes and started yelling at the NYPD hostage negotiators that he was sick of the government watching him, trying to hurt him, lock him up. The end part of the standoff was best described in the paper, and I'll quote it in part. Quote, He did not have a gun, said 49th Precinct Community Affairs Officer Victor DePiro after the standoff ended. No one else was in the house. The standoff ended at 11.40 a.m. on Wednesday, November 19th, after Principe leapt off the house's roof onto an airbag the police had placed below. He was taken to the Jacoby Medical Center for psychiatric tests. Neighbors indicated Principe's mother, who may have been vacationing while the standoff took place, lived in the house with Principe after he moved back to the neighborhood. Quote, From seeing him around the neighborhood, I can tell you he wasn't wrapped too tight, unquote, said Linda Rivera, who lives nearby. I haven't heard anything about Joe since. If you've liked this video, hit the like button. And would it kill you to subscribe?